0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 as we continue our journey through the Old Testament and begin another new book study here of what we call the post exile books in the Bible, and that, of course, like uh, Ezra, uh, mention really of the idea of these books historically fall after the time of the exile, that is the time when the children of Israel were in captivity uh, for that 70-year period in Babylon, and then ultimately, of course, we know that uh, Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persian uh, Empire, and so the Medo-Persian Empire then assimilated all of the Jewish Captives and uh, these books come to us on the backside of that historical time of captivity we saw in our study in the book of Ezra together. That uh, two different times uh, a group of captives returned back to the territory of Jerusalem to go back and uh, to rebuild the temple itself. We were told in Ezra that it was in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, who they were under the rulership of at that time. That Uh, The Lord stirred the heart or the spirit of Cyrus and allowed uh, a group of the Jewish delegation uh, to return back. About 50 captives, 50,000, excuse me, captives went back under uh, the leadership at first of a man named Zerubbabel, who went back and rebuilt uh, and restored the temple itself there in Jerusalem, and then after uh, about six decades or so had passed, a second delegation returned under the man Ezra himself, the priest, uh, and a scribe of the Lord to go back, and Ezra began a teaching ministry spiritually to strengthen the people of God and to minister to them. Uh, And now we have about a a uh, 15-year or so period, roughly, uh, since the end of Ezra has ended, uh, that now the book of Nehemiah uh, comes to us historically, the events here. So it's been about almost a hundred years, roughly, uh, after Cyrus has allowed that first group of captives to return, which was in 538 BC. Uh, And now we're, again, somewhere maybe in that 13 to 15 year window after the book of Ezra that the book of Nehemiah comes to us where Nehemiah will now return to go back and focus on the reconstruction of the uh, walls and the gates in Jerusalem around the city itself uh, to see those things restored and rebuilt uh, which gives us the time frame of around 445 BC that Nehemiah now will return back to and take on this project With the people of God. And basically, the book of Nehemiah will kind of divide up into roughly two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 give to us the construction of the walls. We'll see the end of chapter 6. We're told there that it took 52 days once the project began. To get the walls rebuilt, so quite a fast uh, construction project, but again, because the hand of the Lord was upon it, despite the opposition, uh, very quickly uh, god 's people rallied together and were able to accomplish some pretty incredible things under the leadership of nehemiah, chapters seven through eleven or thirteen then will give to us basically sort of uh, instruction to the people of God once again, as we'll see Ezra come back into the picture and begin to teach God's Word and deal with some of the spiritual issues among God's people. Uh, The book of Nehemiah uh, is a very interesting study, and I think can kind of be looked at from some different directions. Certainly the book of Nehemiah is a great book to study if you're looking for lessons and principles in regards to leadership. Uh, Nehemiah is a great uh, example of biblical leadership in the scriptures. So if you're looking for a character study or just a book to learn some lessons regarding leadership generally and certainly leadership spiritually, Nehemiah is a great book to study from that perspective. Uh, His name, interestingly enough, actually means uh, comfort, Uh, and so many also see the book of Nehemiah as a great biblical study and typology of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who, of course, remember Jesus refers to him as our comforter, the paraclete, the helper. So uh, certainly a great way as well to look at the book of Nehemiah to see kind of how the ministry of the comforter, the Holy Spirit works in the midst of the distress and difficulties Uh, That God's people can be going through. Uh, Nehemiah, of course, we'll see as well just gives us great lessons regarding serving God and how to answer God's call and to be an effective servant of the Lord. So not only just leadership, but just how to serve God generally in his purposes and doing the work that he calls us to in any capacity great lessons uh, that we can glean from the book of Nehemiah. So uh, with that sort of a backdrop, but just a basic understanding of what we're looking at here, let's jump in in verse 1. It begins by telling us the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev. Now the month of Chislev's around November, December, our time frame. It was in the 20th year that is the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes at this time, that he says, I was in Shushan the Citadel. And Shushan the Citadel was a reference to, uh, some of your translations may say uh, Susa. Uh, it's a reference, that area there, to where the winter palace was of the uh, Persian emperor at this time. Uh, so Nehemiah is there in this territory, in that winter palace, And we're told verse two, what took place, it says that Hanani, Nehemiah tells us, one of my brethren came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. So it's during this time period historically uh, that we are told that a man named Hanani, uh, here we're told in verse two, that Nehemiah refers to him as one of my brethren, Came with men from Judah. Now, whether this is a reference, brethren, in the sense of literally, uh, and when we get to later chapters, we have some mention of Hananiah again, and some do believe that Hananiah was actually the uh, brother, in a sense, a a relative genetically, in some sense, uh, of Nehemiah, or whether this is just a reference in a spiritual sense, as we talk about my brother or sister in the Lord, in a sense of the same spiritual family. Uh, Some connections certainly existed between these two to a degree. And when Hanani came from the area of Judah, so he, for some reason, journeys and ends up in the area there of Shushan, where Nehemiah was at this time. And he has come from the area of Judah, where, again, Jerusalem was and where the people of God had been since the rebuilding of the temple. And, again, as I said, up to almost 100 years have passed since that first group went back to do the rebuilding of the temple. As he comes from that area, we're told that when he shows up, that Nehemiah asked, it says there in verse 2, he inquired concerning the condition of how things were back in Judah among the Jewish people and the remnant that were there, says that he asked concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, concerning Jerusalem. So uh, here we see something very interesting already about Nehemiah and recognizing, again, characterizing marks of someone who's used by God and who is able to be more than just used but actually uh, someone who God works through as a very effective leader is we see that Nehemiah was a man of certainly of compassion uh, and he also was a man who had concern. He cared about uh, what was going on in the lives of God's people. He actually expressed concern. Now we'll see at the end of the chapter that Nehemiah We're told the last verse of this chapter was the king's cupbearer. So uh, he had this very prominent position uh, together with the king, uh, serving in an administrative role. He was very close to the king. He had access. So he somewhat, you might say, had a government job. He was an important figure. He was someone who was a prominent man who had uh, a great amount of responsibility in the things that he did. Uh, and yet, nonetheless, uh, rather than just kind of be indifferent or unconcerned, he actually is someone who shows concern regarding the welfare of other people, and specifically regarding the welfare of how God's people were doing. He was concerned about how the people back in Judah and Jerusalem were doing. He wants to know, he asked Hananiah, so tell me, how are things going? Uh, what's the condition of things there? How are people doing? And he exercises concern for and that's just a great character trait, someone who actually is concerned regarding how other people are doing. You know, would to God that he'd give us greater and greater compassion in our hearts where we actually wouldn't be so preoccupied with what we're doing. So uh, engaged in our responsibilities and life affairs that we would fail to actually have a level of concern uh, for how other people are doing. Uh, it's such a, a wonderful thing to see here in Nehemiah that he was concerned how other people are doing. And great question to kind of challenge our hearts at times. You know, how concerned are we really in regards to how other people are doing? Uh, are we so preoccupied with our busyness and our life and responsibilities? And certainly we, we need to take concern for our own situation and our jobs and our welfare and our own family and present surroundings. But uh, do we look beyond ourselves? Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that we're to look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. And uh, certainly a beautiful thing when we actually have concern for how other people are doing and that we actually take the initiative to actually even reach out, to ask. So tell me, uh, I'm concerned. Uh, How are you doing or how are those people doing? And he actually inquires and makes the effort, showing the compassion that he has in his heart, that he's a man who cares about other people and was concerned regarding the condition of others. So as Nehemiah inquires about this, in some ways, uh, he probably, you might say, had no idea that his entire life was to take a major transition by just simply asking how someone else was doing. By just asking out of concern, how are things going? He had no idea how that was going to prompt the compassion in his heart and the call of God within him to actually be something that was the catalyst to launch him into a greater thing that God had planned for his life and how God would use him in this very incredible way that we see taking place here. You might say of Nehemiah, it's fair to say that he was a man whose body was in the kingdom of Persia, but yet his heart was actually there in Judah and Jerusalem. And you know, sometimes that can happen. We can be in one spot, but we have a real heart uh, for somewhere else and a concern for what's going on somewhere else. And many times that's the beginning of maybe a calling that God may use in our life to direct us to ultimately do something that he's leading us to do or wants us to do in some way for him. So as Nehemiah inquires, he gets an update from Hanani. Verse 3 says, And they said to me, that is the delegation or those who are there with Hanani, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and his gates So as Nehemiah asks, he does not get a very good report. He hears that the people there are in great distress. That is, they are stressed out. They are overwhelmed. Conditions have them fearful. And anxious, they're overwhelmed with what's going on there. On top of that, they are a mockery and a reproach to the people in the area. People are uh, mocking them and what they're doing. And the reason that they are in these very dire straits, which is what's being described in great distress and reproach, the reason the conditions are so bad, mainly, we're told, verse three, is because the wall of Jerusalem was broken down. And its gates were burned with fire. So, though the temple had been rebuilt and they reinstituted worship, the bigger issue at this point was there was no protection around the city of Jerusalem and around the temple and the worship life of God's people. The walls of the city were broken down and its gates were burned with fire. And of course, that's initially, if you remember when Nebuchadnezzar came in and he conquered the city of Jerusalem. He just ransacked the entire city, he destroyed it, he burnt things down there. So certainly the conditions of that damage and devastation still exist, as well as the fact that back in the book of Ezra, when they made an effort, the group that went back to rebuild the temple, to start doing some wall reconstruction during that time as well. If you remember, a group of opposition arose, and ultimately an executive order came from the kingdom of Persia as they listened to kind of the... Uh, complainers there in the territory of the area of Jerusalem, and this construction process of working on the walls and those kind of things were shut down. They were permitted to carry forth the rebuilding of the temple, but the walls themselves and the construction of that were not able to be rebuilt. Now, understand, this was an incredible problem because an unwalled city in the ancient culture was basically a city that was extremely vulnerable— It could be very easily attacked by enemies. There was no sense of security for those who lived within the city. And so the fact that there were no walls to provide boundaries of protection to to create a barrier so that they weren't attacked from enemies from without made them very, very vulnerable. They lived in constant insecurity. There was a continual sense of stress, and they were just very vulnerable to attacks and those who could come in and conquer them and just destroy everything, including the temple, that was there and happening in a good way. Uh, and in some ways it's it's a good reminder to us you know there are certain walls and boundaries that are important for us even in our own lives whether in our personal worship and our walk with the lord or among the body of christ among the church and we can be worshiping the lord but if we don't establish some sense of boundaries again not that we're to put walls up in the sense that we completely uh, kind of just Uh, you know, isolate and insulate ourselves completely from the outside world. Uh, But it is healthy to have some level of boundaries and protection to keep ourselves guarded from the infiltration of things that are not healthy, from enemy attack and opposition and things coming in that are going to destroy the worship life. Of God's people that are gonna defile the church and uh, cause things from the world to come in and pollute the work of God and the worship among God's people, as well as in our personal life. It's important to sometimes kind of have some walls and have some boundaries that we establish, healthy boundaries that kind of keep the world from having too much access into our life where our worship life ends up being destroyed we're kind of robbed or ruined uh, because we're worshiping the Lord, but yet we don't have any sense of boundaries to keep ourselves safe and healthy in our spiritual lives. So uh, this put them at great vulnerability. This is why they were in such dire straits, if you would. And Nehemiah, hearing this and understanding this, that the walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, the people are in great distress, they're frustrated, they're scared, they're overwhelmed, they're a reproach among the people in the land. This stirs Nehemiah's heart now with a great burden because he realizes there's a deep need among these people. So notice, the work of God that takes place through Nehemiah's life to accomplish God's purposes and for him to answer God's calling, it all started with one, him expressing concern and inquiring how people were doing. And two, him hearing about a deep need, something that mattered to God's heart. And he understood this and something that moved his heart as he heard about this deep need among this group of people and the conditions that they were in that were not good. This is what stirred his heart to begin moving in the direction to answer a call of God to go into help to provide leadership and to minister to these people. And so many times this is how the Lord will begin in our lives, is he'll let us become aware of some need. And it develops a burden in our heart, and so therefore we have a burden for this group of people or a burden for a community, or we hear about some situation that's not good and it's just in really bad shape, maybe a situation with you know a group of individuals or a family. But we, we, we have this burden for a situation that is not in a good condition, and it's that burden and concern that begins to stir something within us to want to act, to want to help somehow to do something to be used by God to assist as an act of love and compassion. So Nehemiah hears about these things in verse four, it says, and so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So as Nehemiah gets word of the conditions His heart is burdened. His heart is stirred. It says that when he heard these words, he sat down. That is, it kind of, the idea of like, you know, it weakened his knees. He had to just kind of sit down. A lot of times when we give somebody maybe really bad news, I know as a pastor as well as the years I served as a police chaplain if we're going to tell somebody maybe a death notification a loved one has passed or just some tragic thing that has happened sometimes we'll say to people you know would you like to sit down we'll encourage people to actually sit down first because we know the gravity of heavy news can can really just shock somebody well this is kind of the idea of with Nehemiah. As he heard this It burdened him greatly, it caused him great distress, and so he sat down, it says, he began to weep and to mourn for many days, so his heart was broken over what was going on. And again, just a beautiful thing to see, this man had a heart of compassion, his heart was moved to not only being grieved and mourning over what was going on, but it actually says it caused him to weep. Uh, and that says a lot about someone you know we uh, sometimes will cry over lots of different things, uh, but there 's something really defining about what brings us to tears, uh, what causes us to weep, and uh, what are the things that actually stir us that much with great concern and and Here he was stirred because of the concern of difficult things that god 's people were going through, and he wanted to help and Here we see him much like the heart of many great men of God in the Scripture of Nehemiah as well as Jeremiah. It says wept. He was the weeping prophet. He had great concern for God's people. Uh, Paul the Apostle we see weeping. And of course even our Lord Jesus, we're told that he wept over the city of Jerusalem himself. As he came and he saw the conditions of Jerusalem, it says he began to convulsively weep over the city of Jerusalem because of the condition they were in spiritually and they hadn't recognized him as the Messiah and what God was doing. So uh, just something very beautiful here. So often our hearts can be so kind of indifferent to people's plights. So many times our hearts can kind of just get a little calloused and we're so busy and preoccupied and numb to what other people are going through and their difficulties uh, that a lot of times our hearts aren't moved With compassion. Uh, We don't grieve. Our hearts aren't uh, struck with a sense of sadness when we hear about difficulties of other people. And, and, And God wants our hearts to be tender like this. He wants our hearts to be sensitive and it's the Holy Spirit himself who gives to us that kind of compassion. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us a tender heart that when we hear about something, it actually causes us to be sad and so much to where it says he began to abstain from food and engage in prayer. He says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he just, as he hears about this, it just leads him to just to begin to talk to God about it and to seek God. And to cry out to God on behalf of what is going on. And again, another great example here by Nehemiah that when he hears about a situation that needs help, when he hears about a problem that's going on that needs some attention, he doesn't instantly pull out a piece of paper and a pen and start coming up with a plan. And start dreaming up ideas and and coming up with a way to engage in some project. He he doesn't instantly just launch into action. And look, Nehemiah was a man of action. We'll see that. Uh, He was a man of great action. I mean, this guy had a real grit to his personality. He knew how to persevere how to get things done. I mean, he leads the people of God to accomplish a great thing, and despite opposition, he was a man of determination. Nehemiah was a man of action and activity, a man of faithfulness, many, many great things we see about him. But first and foremost, we see that he was a man of prayer, uh, and he took time to pray and to seek God. This is the first of, I believe it's 10 or 12 references to prayer that we have in the book of Nehemiah, and we see that though we need to be people of action, because if we never act upon anything or do anything uh, that 's of no value either. Again, the Bible tells us, let us not love in word and tongue alone, uh, b- but to love in action and truth. The Bible tells us in first John chapter three, so again we, we are to act; love is to make decisions, and love is to display itself through acts of help and servanthood, but notice. All actions should be preceded by prayer. And this is what we want to see here, is that before we act, we should proceed acting by spending time in prayer, seeking God first, Uh, and kind of bringing things before the Lord and and pouring out our hearts and maybe processing what we're feeling and thinking, the emotions of it and the thoughts and the ideas that are going through our mind when we're burdened and concerned about something we become aware about and are kind of feeling like something needs to be done, God. There's help that needs to be brought to this situation that we would sort that through by praying and, and, and seeking God. What would you have us to do? Uh, What would you have me to do? How can I help? What is the right approach to this? What's the, the best plan for handling this situation? So all action should be preceded by prayer. And we see that's the first thing Nehemiah did as he wept and mourned. It says he also began to pray before the God of heaven. And we'll see that he spent a considerable amount of time praying. Actually, a few months he spends in prayer before he ever acts or takes any steps of action. Now, verse 5, down through pretty much the remainder of chapter 1, gives to us, it seems in some ways, an indication of what Nehemiah was praying. Uh, Again, he was praying for months continuously, but this seems to be the general sense of what kind of things he was praying as he was talking this through with God. So verse 5 down through 11 give to us an example of his prayer. And again, great lessons to be learned here. This man was a solid leader and a solid servant because he was a man of prayer, but we also see how he prayed. Great lessons to learn for us as well. Verse 5 says, and as he's praying, he said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant of mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. So notice as he begins to pray, the first thing he does is he begins to acknowledge the greatness and the awesomeness of the God to whom he was praying to. Uh, again, it's often been said before that difficulty should be measured in regards to the object of the one who is going to address or handle that difficulty. And so Nehemiah here very wisely as he starts to pray and talk this through, the first thing he does is he just starts reflecting upon how great God is, how awesome and powerful God is, as he's dealing with a a large concern, a big problem, something that looks like, oh my goodness, how in the world is that going to be addressed or resolved? It seems like it would require so much and so many things for that situation to be solved or that dilemma to be fixed or or to bring adequate assistance to help in that situation. He recognizes the awesomeness of God. Think of Jeremiah, as Nehemiah here says, oh Lord, great and awesome God, Jeremiah himself says, Ah, Lord God, there is nothing too hard for you. And so important, I think, when we start out praying, certainly that one of the first things we would do before we start maybe asking things of God or telling things to God, that we would just start with praise and adoration, just acknowledging who God is, honoring Him, being thankful that we can come to Him. And there's something about as we do that, it actually strengthens our faith. It helps us to pray with greater confidence. We realize that we are praying to a God who is indeed a great God and an awesome God that is awesome in power, that has no limitations, a God to whom nothing is too hard for him. No problem is beyond his ability to resolve it. There's nothing that he can't give to us, direction and guidance to engage in if it's something he is leading us to do or wanting us to address and help in some way. So he says, oh, Lord, great and awesome God. He goes on to say, you who are a God who keep your covenants of mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. So there he reflects upon the faithfulness of God. God, you're a covenant-keeping God. You're a promise-keeping God. And I come to you in light of these things that you're awesome in power and faithful in who you are. He says, verse six, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. So there we start to get a reflection of how Nehemiah prayed. He was praying not just every day, but day and night. The idea is it was continuous prayer day and night as this burden was on his heart for the conditions back in Jerusalem 900 miles away from where he was. Again, his body was there, but his heart was there in Jerusalem somewhere else. And day and night as he's burdened and he's concerned, intercessory prayer, intercessory prayer. He just was all throughout the day, every time he would think about this or felt concern over it, he would bring it to God in prayer day and night. Reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians where he says that we're to pray without ceasing. Or pray continually. And when something's really a burden on your heart, uh, that's how it should be. We should just keep bringing it before God, interceding, talking to God about it. Every time the concern comes to our mind or to our heart, that day and night we just keep lifting it up before the Lord, that situation, or the people that we're worried or concerned about in the situation. He says, I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, Lord, they're your people he says and confess the sins of the children of israel with which we have sinned against you both my father's house and i have sinned and we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes nor the ordinances he says which you have commanded your servant moses so much like other men of god who pray in the scripture Again, not indicting other people, not just saying, Lord, they have sinned, they have failed, I can't believe God, all the mistakes that they've made, I can't believe they would make such poor decisions and do such rotten things, but he, again, associates himself with the people of God. Uh, There's that sense of connection that he recognizes we are the same family. And when one of us fail, in a sense, all of us experience that failure together and just shows you again, his humility, like Ezra, like Daniel, like others that we see pray. He doesn't say they have sinned. He says, Lord, we have sinned. He says, me and my father's house, which I have sinned, acknowledging himself, we have acted corruptly. In a sense, Nehemiah recognizes, Lord, this is the problem is that we are the ones who fail you. Lord, the conditions in Jerusalem, he's saying, this isn't your fault. The problems that are going on, it's not something that you have created. We've created these dilemmas for ourselves as your people. We again, so many times, he says, have failed again and again to be obedient to your commandments, your statutes, your ordinances that have been given to us. Again, Nehemiah is identifying that so often the problems And the dilemmas and the difficulties and situations in our lives are because of our neglect to obey what the Word of God says. Because when we disobey God's Word, we bring damage upon ourselves. We violate God's will, and when we do that in disregarding what God says is best for us, we cause things to get ruined we cause, in a sense, things like the walls to get broken down, and lives get broken down and, and lives get burnt and things happen, and, and that which should be good and valuable ends up getting ruined in our lives, and so often it's directly connected to the, the problems that we make, very simply, areas where we've disobeyed the word of God, which had we obeyed it, it would have kept things healthy and stable but it's our disregard for God's word. as his people so often that bring a lot of the broken down walls and the ruined conditions that can happen at times in our lives. And he says, Lord, we we have created this problem. We've created the situation and the mess that exists there in Jerusalem. But then verse 8, he says, remember, I pray, the word, that is the word of God, that you commanded your servant Moses saying, and he quotes here from Leviticus chapter 26, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. So he says, Lord, you told us in your word, you promised us, in fact, Leviticus 26, he quotes from, that if we were unfaithful to you, that you would do exactly what you have done, that you would cause us to be scattered among the nations. That's how the captivity began. And the whole process that was the beginning of where they find themselves now, struggling back in Jerusalem still. He said, however, verse 9, you also said in your word, God, but if you return to me, that is an attitude of repentance, recognizing we have failed. We take responsibility, God. We're not trying to indicate in any way that this is not our fault and our responsibility but Lord, we are sorry, and we want to turn back to you. We want to get back into right relationship with you. He said, God, you also told us, and here he's quoting from sections in Deuteronomy chapter 30, using this as the principle of what he's saying. God, you also said that when we return to you, that if you return to me, God, you said, and keep my commandments and do them, that is repenting and being obedient once again, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he he reminds God, Lord, your word said that if we were unfaithful and failed, that there would be consequences. And we're experiencing that. Our disobedience to your word has brought the direct consequences and problems we're struggling. But he says, God, you also have given to us promises as well that if we are willing to confess our sins and to repent, that is to turn away from them and turn back to you, to be back in right relationship with you by then keeping your word once again, that God, you also promised that you would do a work of restoration, that you would bring healing, that you would restore us back to what you want for our lives, being under your blessing and experiencing your good hand upon us and he says it doesn't matter if we were scattered to the farthest part of the heavens in the words he's saying god you promised that no matter how far we go from you no matter how far is your people we can in a sense get off track and sometimes you know, even as god's people we can get really far off track i mean really really far off track And sad to recognize sometimes how even God's people, when they're not obeying the word and listening to the Holy Spirit and staying in right relationship regularly with God, how far even God's people can get really, really far, almost, again, to the farthest parts of distancing themselves from being in right fellowship with God and the the dilemmas that they can cause for themselves. But he says, God, you promised that you would restore no matter how far we've gotten ourselves off track. And here he's resting in these wonderful promises of God from his word. And what is Nehemiah doing? Again, in his prayer, he is praying the word of God as he's speaking to God within his prayer. He's using God's very word to petition God, to ask God to fulfill his word, because he knows that the word of God is the will of God and that God wants to fulfill his word and he always will. So very wisely in his prayer, He is using actual scripture verses and principles and truths from scripture as he's praying because then he knows he's praying in accordance with the will of God. And if we ask anything the Bible says in accordance with his will, we know that he hears us and that we will have the petitions that have been asked of him because God answers prayers in accordance with his will. And so Nehemiah here shows a great, great way to pray effectively. As you're praying in your personal prayer life, just generally and all the more, like Nehemiah, when you have a burden about something or you're concerned about a situation or concerned for certain individuals, begin to pray with the principles and truths of God's word. God, this is what your word says. And and you begin to bring God's word before him. And it's a wonderful way to know that you're praying effectively. This is one of the most helpful ways to know that you are praying prayers in accordance with God's will that God wants to answer and bring about because God wants to perform his word and he's promised to do it. And he's a faithful covenant keeping God. Again, when we pray, we're not trying to get our will done. We're trying to get God's will done. And the best way to know God's will is to go to his word. So take the word of God. It's one of the great valuable things about getting a good working knowledge of the scriptures. Because then as you're praying, as the Holy Spirit brings verses to your mind and just general truths, the principles, even if you can't quote the chapter and verse or the exact statements of the scripture, as you know, the truths of the scripture generally, you can incorporate those things into your prayer and communication with God and be very effective or literally just bring those verses specifically, literally directly to him. I often say, I like to read my Bible and pray the exact same time now. In other words, as I'm having my personal devotional time with the Lord, I like to read a little bit and then maybe something I read, I I take what I read and, and as I'm reading it, I just start using that as a, as a means to prayer. And I start praying the very verses that I'm reading that moment in my personal devotional time with the Lord. And it's just a very effective way, whether doing that and just kind of taking God's word and praying it to him, or specifically when a situation arises, you go, you find those promises and truths, and you use those things to stand upon with confidence as you communicate to God. So Nehemiah goes on, verse 10, to say, now, Lord, he says, these are your servants and your people, he says, whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. I like what he does here. He basically says, Lord, my heart is burdened for them, but certainly, Lord, my heart in no way can be more burdened than yours is, because he says, Lord, these aren't my servants and my people, and Lord, I'm not the one who's redeemed them. These are your people, Lord. These are your servants. These are individuals who have such value to you that you redeem, notice he says, by your great power and your strong hand. Lord, you did a work in their lives and you began a good work and I believe you are faithful to complete every good work that you start. So he kind of pleads with God again on this basis of, Lord, if I care about them, if I'm concerned about them, if I want to see them helped and their situation addressed, how much more, Lord? Must you want something to happen there? How much more do you want to do something to help? You already began to redeem them. Lord, certainly you by your strong hand and your great love for them want to continue to help them in this current dilemma they find themselves in because they're your servants. Lord, your testimony, he's saying, Lord, it's your your reputation that is on the line because these are your people and for your honor, Certainly you want to help. And I love how Nehemiah just wisely, with confidence, again, knowing how much God loves his people, uses this as an encouragement to seek God's help on their behalf. Verse 11, he says, And O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And, of course, we know he's referring to the king, the king Artaxerxes. Give me favor in his sight, Lord, for I was the king's cupbearer. So as Nehemiah comes to the close of his recorded prayer here, we notice he now begins to get very personal in his prayer. He actually starts to say here, Lord, I'm asking, would you let me as your servant prosper? He's saying, Lord, there is no way that I can do anything to be of any help in this situation unless you put your favor upon the burden in my heart and any desire or effort I can put forth to help in this situation. If you don't prosper my willingness to do something and give me an open door and bless what I want to do to help, then, Lord, he says, it'll be a complete failure. There's nothing I can do in my human strength or my own natural ideas to fix this situation. And I think that's a good place to be for all of us when we're burdened about situation or concerned about particular individuals and maybe we want to help in some scenario uh, that we would recognize it's not going to be our great ideas or our superb wisdom or our efforts to do all kinds of things that are really going to accomplish things. Uh, The Bible says that it's the spirit that gives life to things, the flesh profits nothing. And so here Nehemiah is saying, God, I want to help, I'm burdened. I'm laying this situation before you. But he says, Lord, would you please prosper me? Give me success, he's saying, God. Prosper my efforts and grant me mercy in the sight of this man, of course, referring to the king as he was the king's cupbearer. And the reason that this was Important, again, is Nehemiah realized the only way he would have freedom to be able to go to Jerusalem and to do anything would be if his supervisor, and more than that, the monarch, uh, the ruler of the empire of the Medo-Persian people at this time, King Artaxerxes, would allow him to have that opportunity, that there was no way he could do anything if he was not freed from the position that he was serving in to be able to act in some way to do this. He realizes that it is crucial for God to move the heart of the king, this person who is in authority over him. Again, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 21 that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he can turn it whatever way he wishes. We saw this with Cyrus in our study in the book of Ezra that says that God stirred the heart of Cyrus to allow the people the freedom to be able to go back and to restore and rebuild their temple there so again Nehemiah recognizes the same thing Lord I need you to move on the heart of King Artaxerxes to give me favor with him so that he would allow me to go And because he says I was the king's cupbearer, I, I couldn't just abandon my post I would be put to death if I did that I couldn't just say well I'm going because I'm concerned and you're just going to have to deal with it or find a replacement Nehemiah doesn't do that he says God if this is of you and you want me to do this, then you are going to have to do everything to make it happen. Beginning with, you are going to have to soften the heart of the one in authority over me, and you're going to have to move in a way that you open the necessary doors for me to begin to step into this, to offer some help or to be able to participate in the thing that's upon my heart. And how wonderful to know that God is able to do that and that we can trust the Lord as the great and awesome God to do that, and that we pray and ask God to do that, rather than trying to strive in the flesh to make something happen or trying to force people or coerce people by efforts of things that we do humanly. I think sometimes we make a great mistake where we just— try and strive in the flesh to change somebody's heart or to change somebody's mind. And sometimes we can do things uh, by the way we put forth human effort that really can almost kind of be something that backfires or causes maybe even a poor testimony when we would have been much better to just respect authority and to respect the reality that God has ultimate authority over every human being, even the kings of the earth and he can soften and turn the heart of any king or any person in a direction that he wants it to go, if it's something that is of his will, then God can do it. God can move on people's hearts. He can stir people's spirits to act in behalf of what he wants. He can open the right doors. He can bring things to pass as is necessary. And Nehemiah says, this was crucial because I was the king's cupbearer. And again, as I said earlier, the cupbearer was a very prominent position. A cupbearer wasn't like we think today, just like a butler. uh, Maybe it was much, much more than that. A cupbearer to the king was the person who was a very trusted individual who was responsible as the king was receiving his meals or his uh, goblet of wine. Basically, it was the cupbearer's responsibility to taste those things before it was given to the king. Uh, to make sure that no one was trying to poison the king to assassinate him, to get rid of him. So you have to understand, the king's selection of a cupbearer was crucial, because if you had a corrupt cupbearer who didn't really care about the king and wasn't someone with integrity and that wasn't loyal to you, uh, you could be in real big trouble quick as a king. So you were very selective. So the fact that this man, Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes shows that he was a man of character, that he was well-respected by King Artaxerxes. He was a reliable man, a man that apparently had great integrity and was very reliable. Uh, More than that, the cupbearer had tremendous access to the king. Again, you were always interacting with the king. You were among uh, the realm of the things that the king was doing as he's eating drinking multiple times throughout the day, whether at banquets or his regular meals. So the cupbearer, became historically also someone who became a very trusted advisor to the king because the cupbearer had access and relationships. So a lot of times the king ultimately would utilize his cupbearer as someone who he would at times share things with and he would inquire. He kind of was like a, a close cabinet member and an advisor, a senior advisor to him. So it kind of gives you the idea of Nehemiah here, the role that he's in and why he needed to be released from this position and uh, again, kind of shows you as well something very beautiful about Nehemiah. Here's Nehemiah in this current situation, and Nehemiah, you might say, has a very comfortable government job. I mean, he's in, he's in living in the palace life. He has a great position, probably got a great government pension there with Artaxerxes. And I mean, just uh, in a very comfortable position of prominence, well taken care of. And yet, though in that condition, his heart is burdened and he's concerned about a group of people 900 miles away there in Jerusalem, he's burdened about the plight of people in difficult situation far away, and he is willing, if you would, to be able to set aside his comforts and his position and all of his experience that he has there in the palace government job and to let go all of that. To be willing to answer the call of God, to be able to go, to make great sacrifice, and to help people back in Jerusalem, if that would be something God would see fit to use him to do. What a great example of, again, the sacrificial nature. And again, if we want to be someone who's used by the Lord, uh, like Jesus, we need to have that same spirit of the Lord where Jesus was willing to set aside the glory and the comfort and the, the, the wonderful position he had there at the throne of God in heaven and to depart and to set that aside and to leave that comfort and to be willing to enter into our world humbly and take the form of a servant and make great sacrifices in order to bless and to benefit and to help people in great need. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. And that spirit of Jesus is, I believe, what he still wants to do in us as we see different situations where maybe we become aware of something. And the Lord wants us to inconvenience ourselves, if we would, to step into a situation. And it does take sacrifice and inconvenience. And if we want to be a good servant of the Lord, we have to be willing to sacrifice, to inconvenience ourselves, to maybe give up certain things even to set things aside, to be able to help others and to engage in being used by the Lord as a servant or a minister in some way. Again, this is another great aspect and component as well that Nehemiah represents of good leadership. Leaders have to be willing to sacrifice. If you are not willing to go the extra mile, if you're not willing to inconvenience yourself and make sacrifices, you will never be able to effectively lead in any situation. Leaders must be willing to make necessary sacrifices to help people in their lives. Now, just before we conclude, if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us, as Nehemiah had been praying, and we've seen this, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I'd never been sad in his presence before And the king said to me, chapter 2, verse 2, Why is your face sad since you are sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the palace, of my, the place of my father's tombs lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? Verse 4, And the king said to me, What do you request? Now, we'll pick up with this spot here next time, but before we conclude, take into consideration what's happening here. Just back with me to verse 1. It says, And it came to pass, after the time of prayer, in the month of Nisan. Now, that indicates four months. From the time that Nehemiah first got word... It says what was going on in the month of Chislev, which told back in verse 1 of chapter 1, and he heard about the situation, and he started praying night and day and interceding because of his great concern and the burden on his heart. It says it finally came to pass. That is what he had been praying about, talking through with God, asking God to open the door, asking God what he was supposed to do, if he was to help, how he was to help, what it would involve, what it would look like, it came to pass finally that is the, the culmination of his prayers, the opening of the door. It came to pass four months later in the month of Nizam, where things are now going to begin to unfold circumstantially for him to take action in regards to the burden that's on his heart to help the people. But notice, he spent four months just praying. Four months just seeking God about this situation and concern in his heart. He didn't instantly act. He didn't automatically jump into action. He spent four months just praying it through, laying it out before God, and the burden continued. The burden increased on his heart, and that's oftentimes one of the ways we can tell if indeed God's really leading us to do something is you'll receive a burden from the Lord because it's something that God brings to your attention, and the burden won't go away. It will just continue and continue and the burden will increase and it will become a prayer burden that you continue to pray about and talk to God about and seek God about. And after four months of praying this through and spending time seeking God, ultimately the Lord begins now circumstantially to start to bring the pieces together and start to open doors because it had been birthed in prayer. And that is the pattern that we always want to utilize in all of our lives, that we would spend time praying and interceding, because we're going to see that because Nehemiah did this, he was ready and prepared when the door opened. He had a plan in his mind. God had given to him ideas and thoughts, and he had plans about what to do and how to handle the situation because he spent time seeking God first. So important, we'll see as we get into chapter 2 as this starts to unfold now, that this time spent in prayer was of great, great Value. So read ahead and we'll pick up next time in chapter 2 as we see this wonderful work of God begin to happen through this man, Nehemiah.